This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today we're doing Making Love, Helen's very own short film on the theme of commodification of people and human relationships. Helen, start us off. Love is painful. That's why they call it falling in love. Love is traumatic, complicated, even senseless, precisely because it revolves around a nothing. There is no sexual relationship, according to Lacan. This essential nothing is what makes love love and sex sex. There is no natural wholeness to return to, no quote-unquote existing order of things. Scrambling around to codify the right mode of dealing with one another, investigating the correct set of rules for sex that maximise pleasure and minimise trauma, commodifying the act, talking about it explicitly, censoring the act entirely, none of these things will ever work, and that's a good thing. Sex and relationships are a problem, and that that's what make uh, sorry, and that's what gives them meaning. There will be no sexual ecstasy without this pesky issue of irresolution. There will be no thing called love without lack. Jouissance is a form of extreme painful pleasure. It's a term that includes the counterintuitive psychoanalytic idea of enjoyment. Enjoyment is the unfulfilled fulfillment one feels when one doesn't get something. Whereas pleasure is the straightforward sensation one gets when drinking coffee in the morning or having a warm bath. Enjoyment is what one feels in anticipation of an ever-receding horizon. It's the pernickety satisfaction of studying for exams when getting 100% won't solve anything. The work one puts into saving for a car when the pleasure of the car itself will never repay the dues on all that toil and sacrifice. Enjoyment is a psychic phenomenon on which capitalism thrives. Jouissance is a form of enjoyment, but it's much more intense. It's an extreme physical sensation that relies on barriers, on impossibility, on the aspiration for a completeness that will, be, that will by definition, never come. It's a child going nuts with excitement for the arrival of Santa, when the gifts he brings will give her only five minutes enjoyable play. It's the painful pleasure of foreplay, the ecstasy of the act of sex rather than the cold dissatisfaction of completing it. For early Lacan, the jouissance of sex relied on manifest impossibility. This is an insight on which making love is based the technology of courtly love. We use the thriller genre to put forward the idea for both audience and characters that the act of meeting is a question of life and death. And then we undercut this fantasy when we reveal at the end of the film that the husband knows already what the couple doesn't quite yet, that their desire for one another relies on something or someone getting in their way. By the time they ask at the end of the film who will now stand in their way, they have realized two things. First, that their love relies on an external obstacle. Second, that this is not at all a bad thing. They come to realise that dissolving their relationship is not necessarily the moral or righteous course of action, but rather that they now know what they want and they can pursue this without the kind of toxic intensity that had previously plagued their relationship. They now will find a way with the agency that comes with unconscious insight of directly recreating a barrier to their love. They have come to enjoy their enjoyment. Whereas enjoyment alone is capitalistic, enjoying our enjoyment is perhaps the best we have at overcoming the market system. It's taking conscious control of the necessary difficulties that come with being human. It's lowering the stakes and living productively into those contradictions. It's giving oneself creatively to one's desires, but knowing that the fulfillment of them, the fulfillment of them will not provide a gateway to the transcendent. Here and now is all we have. Later Lacan sees the issue of relationships as even more intractably impossible than early Lacan. Something deeper is going on than prohibition. We are dealing here with an internal inherent failure. Prohibition only functions insofar as it inhibits the impossible. In the film, the couple confronts this fact when they leave the hotel and the prohibition has evaporated. They are not left with nothing, but rather less than nothing. They aren't just disappointed, they are disgusted, disorientated and confused. The slogan of 1968 promises that we could jouir sans entrave, experience jouissance or sexual pleasure without barriers. But what we are left with when we are confronted by sex without fantasy, sex without prohibition, is trauma. This is not to say that we should return to imagined archaic sexual arrangements, missionary position after church on a Sunday, but rather that alternatives are also caught in the same structural traps. And thus they are just as ambivalently potent and impotent as other forms of sex. S&M, for example, brings the jouissance of prohibition into visible relief. It might be more pleasurable for people engaged in certain fantasy structures than missionary sex, but it doesn't offer any greater access to the divine. And it is in the promise of the divine in relation to sex that the toxicity of the slogan resides. 
It's this ideology of promise that gave the sexual revolution its capitalistic edge, in line with a phenomenon that is common now, marketization through the aesthetics of emancipation. Capital feeds off the ideology of promise, and in 1968 that promise was that we could transform the political through the opening up of a sphere of sex, and that there, oh, sorry, of the sphere of sex, and that there were meaningful transcendent experiences to be found in that space. Me Too does not only speak to an era of past trauma, but also, and perhaps most especially, a trauma within the present. We are constantly confronted by sex without our fantastical engagement in it, within a world where the understanding that sex and relationships are necessarily and productively difficult has been dissolved. And we have transformed what is truly emancipatory in sex, that it offers a philosophical confrontation with contradiction, into the oppositional finger-pointing of the gender wards. The result? A desperate attempt to get rid of it all through commodification. The, the overcoming of repression has added commodity fetish to sexual fetish, which is actually a double repression of the emancipatory contradiction. We're exposed to sex, but now doubly caught with an ideology. All right. Nina, you're up. Okay, I'm going to begin with something that follows quite well, actually, from what um, Helen said, which is a comment that I wrote on my own Facebook wall, which not everyone in the world has seen, surprisingly. Um, and it's very relevant <laughs> to this discussion. So I'm going to begin by reading out this uh, astonishingly insightful comment uh, of mine. So here you go. All revolutions are libidinal. In the 1960s, the snake finally catches its own tail and unleashes the flows. The classical solution to the problem of desire that held for a while, at least, the family, is smashed. Women are no longer private but public property, as the second wave will point out. It is not clear that this solves the problem of sex, as if it could ever be solved. But here we are in a fully pornographized world after the orgy, as Baudrillard says. At the same time, increasing moral panics accompany speedy disinhibitions. Remember that May 68 in Paris begins at the same time as students want to stay the night at dorms of the opposite sex. So this week or recently, for example, parents are being asked in the UK to report their teenage sons for sexual infractions at private schools. Everybody on some level knows that teenage sexuality is all over the place. It's clumsy and it, at the same time it's kind of ever-pressing concern for adolescents, both male and female, everywhere. So we live in a culture that's kind of simultaneously permanently stimulated on a low level, perhaps by a kind of pornographic, um, whether directly um, pornographic or kind of implicitly pornographic, a kind of low level sexual um, stimulation. At the same time as it's captured by the market and think of things like OnlyFans. Um, and simultaneously, it's a culture that's unable to reconcile this kind of prurience with its puritanism. It's puritanical, my favourite neologism, and it cannot hold. If for fun, if nothing else, we can map the sexual revolution onto the French Revolution. We can see a too rapid unleashing of forces, which, after all, are extremely powerful and potentially dangerous libidinal forces, this is. Indeed, we live in a society precisely as a cope because of the power of these forces. Um, there, there will inevitably be a backlash when you have this too quick kind of disinhibition or a kind of uh, unleashing of the flows or deterritorialization, to use Deleuzean language. Those that most took advantage of the sexual revolution will be decapitated. Think of um, Harvey Weinstein, for example, and think of the relationship between decapitation and castration. They're very similar, um, as Freud will point out. Because these people, their commitment to the sexual revolution was the most virtuous. In a way, Weinstein is the greatest sexual revolutionary. He's somebody who took seriously the promise of the 60s. And virtue and terror go together, as Robespierre um, points out. Burke says that if you change society too quickly, there will inevitably be a backlash. If, let us hypothesise, the sexual revolution similarly went too far too quickly, then there will inevitably be this moment of terror, before hopefully something like Thermidor and the Good Republic, with its equilibertines, avoiding the excesses of the wilder times. And we'll either reinvent the family, 
or there will be communes, or, well, there will be a lot of people for whom sexuality is purely virtual, and there will probably not be any more parties for teenagers or for anyone else. So if we want to map on, let's say, the possibilities for relationships, I think is explored in this film, basically, whether there's an obstacle or otherwise, every single one of us, as, as, as let's say, individual beings of desire, desiring beings, we can either be with no one, or we can be with someone, or we can be with everyone. And perhaps polyamory is somewhere between someone and everyone. But let's just say, for the sake of simplicity, no one, someone, or everyone. And I already mentioned the the kind of um, private-public uh, split, the kind of opening up that the sexual revolution seemed to promise, which was to break the monogam- monogamous family structure. However, however flawed that was in the first place and of course people have always had affairs and so on and sometimes you know mistresses and you know there there are known ways of organizing and arranging one's desire even within a kind of technically monogamous relationship um but as as the second wave pointed out you know to simply go from women being private property to women being public property is not yet actually a kind of dialectical solution to the problem of desire, not, nor is it necessarily one that benefits women if simply they are treated um, not as the property of one man, but as the property of all men, um, with all of the attendant consequences that sexual encounters will still have, even in the age of um, uh, increased uh, sexual reproductive technologies such as the pill and so on. Um, if we focus for a second on the question of the no one, here we are up today against the idea of the incel, the involuntary celibate, or sometimes the voluntary celibate, the volcel. And this is a category that's been widely demonised. Um, this is a term that was invented by a woman, but actually has obviously come to um, largely be applied by themselves and by others to uh, fundamentally young men who are deemed to be uh, quite dangerous in many ways, responsible for um, uh, a couple, at least, uh, mass killings, in some instances, and incels by virtue of these events are sort of tainted by association. So young men who are lonely, who want a girlfriend, who, you know, um, in some instances then become resentful against the entire category or class of women or against society as a whole for, in a sense, not providing them with what they imagine they deserve. At least this is how we're supposed to understand the incel. But the incel or the volcel, and the volcel is like a, a just a perspectival way of seeing the incel. You know, it's the kind of noble incel, if you like, the person who says, I voluntarily give up. I don't want to play this game. I don't want to participate in these rituals. And something like asexuality as an, as an ever-increasing identity would also figure in this um, type of position positioning vis-a-vis the so- social and desire. Um, and if our options, therefore, are no one, someone or everyone, then the question of what it is to be with someone, let's say, in the classical sense, to be with one other person, whoever it is, becomes, I think, in practice, um, precisely a kind of practice. You know, the film is interesting for pointing out in a you know quel- fairly rapid way precisely the way in which desire can function or pivot on uh, a- an obscure third aspect, like the obstacle, let's say. But the reality of living with someone else, the reality of being someone's companion, whether you are married, whether you have children, is a commitment always to a third, whether you have a contract or not. It's a commitment to the relationship itself. So even the couple you know, the boring, old, monogamous, let's say, heterosexual couple depends upon a third aspect, which is the mutual commitment to a to a third aspect, which is the relationship itself. And this is the thing that most is eroded in a world in which desire is commodified, which is the commitment aspect. It's the commitment to the third because everything is positioned in terms of need, want, desire, immediacy, flexibility, and uh, fleetingness. So you can have hookups, you can meet people on an app, you have no commitment to them beyond perhaps meeting them at a particular place. Um, And even then you can flake, you can ghost, all of these very contemporary words for ways of treating people as less than um, relevant to your life. You know, this this commodification extends to these um, forms of lack in terms of how we relate to the other. And these are all relations to the other that lack 
a third. And I think the the object or the position of the missing third is is perhaps one of the biggest problems we have today. And the same would go for friendship too. If you have a, a culture that completely erodes all questions of ties, bonds, loyalty, you know, these these terms sound very, very old. These old virtues, they sound irrelevant, you know. Um, but, you know, without those ties, and these are the things that precisely get destroyed by capitalism, as Marx points out. Um, without these ties, we are we are smashed. You know, we are nothing but atomized. And I think, you know, one of the things I've learned is that loyalty is intensely important. You know, loyalty to people, particularly when they are in trouble, when they are, you know, the person that nobody wants to see because they've done something wrong or their behaviour is bad. That's precisely the moment at which the commitment is to the relationship and to the person because of the relationship. All right. I'm up. So Helen's film resonates. I have known so many people in this type of situation. Here's how it goes. The man feels his life is missing something he can't describe. He meets a woman and he projects that lack onto her. She is everything that's missing, and therefore her greatness is beyond description. She's put on a pedestal, and for her this is both exciting and terrifying. The man treats her as if she has the power to change his life. On the one hand, this is immensely flattering. His attention gives her enormous confidence, and this makes him hard to reject. On the other hand, she knows he's delusional. She can never live up to his image of her, and therefore if she allows the relationship to develop, it is doomed to failure. Unable to give him up, and unable to give him what he wants, she has no choice but to keep him in a liminal space. It's not friendship, and it's not a relationship. The man becomes a coat that sits in the back of the closet on a hanger. She never throws the coat away, but she doesn't put it on, either. She just opens the closet now and then and looks at the coat, making it think that maybe this is its moment of triumph. The more she refuses to give him what he wants, the harder he tries, and the more desperate and unsettling his behavior becomes. His resentment builds and builds, as it becomes harder and harder for him to tolerate being in a role that is not a role. He becomes convinced she doesn't love him. The pain drives him to push things to their breaking point. She must either love him or reject him, save him or condemn him. The pressure is too much for her. She tries to keep him without embracing him, but he won't have it. She's forced to tell him to go away. But after a while, she gets lonely, and she misses him in the way he made her feel. In a moment of weakness, she reaches out to him, and he comes rushing back. The whole cycle begins again. What begins as a reunion of friends develops yet again into the relationship that is not a relationship. There are endless reasons given for why the relationship isn't happening, but the true reason is always the same. His view of her remains a delusion, and she knows it. But she loves to listen to his rubbish, and so she keeps him around too long once more, and he presses her too far once again and she's forced to tell him to go away one more time. And maybe, if they're lucky, that's where it ends. But sometimes there's a third round, or even a fourth. And even if this is the last time the man does it with this woman, there is always the woman who comes after. And even if this is the last time the woman does it with this man, there will always be another one to offer the same nonsense. If you're not careful, you can spend your whole life doing this, chasing images and being flattered by image chasers. Many of us see through retail therapy, we know that buying something won't fill the holes in our hearts. But this is a different beast. We are steeped in the idea that settling down is the solution to the pain of youth dissolving into adult life under capitalism. Young people can't fathom what settling down is like, and so they imagine that the person who makes this op option possible must possess mystical supernatural powers. This person will somehow deliver us from our emptiness. They will make it possible for us to form bourgeois families, for us to become the better versions of our parents, for us to have the virtues we cannot imagine ourselves having. More and more, the dating world is one in which women are pushed into one of two frames. Either they must pretend to be this person, or they must be willing to have sex with a man while he continues to look for this person. She might be on a pedestal, but he puts her there to serve as his idol, his redeemer. All she gets in return is flattery. Idols are commodities. You can buy statues of the gods on Etsy. Ultimately, this cycle breaks only when she has enough confidence to have no need of him, and he finds a purpose which gives his life a meaning which does not depend on her. But under capitalism, it's very hard for her to get the confidence, and it's very hard for him to find a purpose. 
And so we're getting more and more codependent quasi-relationships, punctuated by meaningless sexual encounters to absorb the intimacy which the idols can't reciprocate. The more he treats her like a bust of Minerva, the more she turns to marble. He stares into her eyes, and the eyes that once stared back turn to stone. The warmth and words leave her, and before long she is just an image on his Instagram, rising again and again to torment him. All he can do is find the first woman he can who will have him, so he can disappoint them both. Very good. It was funny. I was like, I wasn't sure. It, I made this film like like three years ago now, so it was like not sure if it, when you go back to it, it'll be like, I don't know, something completely senseless. But no, I, I there like both in what you were saying, there was something that um, Nina, what you said about relation, like commitment to the the relationship, I think is so important, and also that this this idea of relationship is is sort of like. Um, there as something that we can hold on to so this morning there was a bit of um a conflict going going on upstairs when I woke up and I you know went and saw what was going on between members of the family and the the point that I ended up making was like no we are able to say things we are able to have arguments we are able to um say what we need to say or also you know as you said Nina like help somebody when they most need us because there's a commitment to that relationship there and part of the issue and I think maybe you touched on this um, Benjamin with like the commodification of everything is that often when it comes to relationships we feel so precarious that we with one another that we we can't risk saying things or doing things in case for instance we lose the only good thing that's left in our life which is a, a, a sort of a, a semi form of commit, committed non commitment with a person, and I think it, it also happens to obviously women. I think you know can be more pedestalized than men often, but also there is an element of that for women as well. You know that, that that a man might be able to provide for them or something. Obviously, that's not really so much the case necessarily anymore. But that's still like a you know you know like a let's say a cliche that is still maybe operates on some level. Um, but yeah, it's just this idea of there being like a given, a solid social bond that means that when times get difficult, the stakes are lowered and that also we can be honest with one another. Because if you can't, if you if you fear that like these these bonds are so tenuous because basically soon we're going to have to pay for conversations, you know, <laughs> you can't you can't be honest at all with anybody. No, completely. And I, I think this I mean, it's, it's, it's very complicated because that, that kind of fantasy of the one, you know, in, in a way, it's sort of, it's a sustaining fantasy for many, many people. And it's also, but it also underpins a sustaining fantasy of capital as well. You know, that in a way there's a, there's a lack generated. So even when you're having these fleeting relationships, there's still this kind of theology of the one. And I think a lot of nineties television shows like Sex in the City in a way were also kind of very interested in this kind of the, relationship with the many but also the fixation on the one and you know but of course it's a kind of in a sense realistically impossible that one person will be able to let's say um talk to you about all the things you want to talk about all the time do all the things you want to do uh be uh sexually um i don't know available and uh into the same things enough as you are um you know the 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 chances of one person kind of um somehow encapsulating all of these things is um extremely small so the 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 level of fantasy involved in the everyday is also kind of like predicated on a sort of commitment to the present itself it's like well i've decided to be with this person and it's like you know, I've got friends, like maybe I've got a friend I can talk to about this one obscure thing that I'm really into and this other friend is into, but I don't have sex with that friend. You know, my friendship is partly predicated on the kind of uh, foreclosure or exclusion of another kind of relationship, which is reserved or preserved for this person. And I don't know, there's a kind of complicated commitment to all of your relationships in a weird way. So once you have a relationship with one person that's uh, meaningful it sort of colors all the other ones as well and it, i think there's something actually very um shocking about that for a lot of people and and like what benjamin was saying about it becoming a kind of increasingly impossible to imagine you know settling down with one person and therefore this fantastical image you know becoming like ridiculously hard for both men and women let's say to to sort of um to live with also you know it wasn't that long ago before um when 
men used to have to get a job in order to be able to even propose to a woman, right? You had to already establish yourself in certain ways. You know, there were certain steps in order to be like an eligible bachelor. And the idea then of being an honest woman, you know, like let's making an honest woman of someone is a fascinating phrase, right? Who is the honest woman? Right. Is it the woman who no longer has to lie and seduce in order to attract men because she's she's got one? <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. You know, I love that. <laughs> yeah, I think in the States in particular, there's a, a very, very overtly religious element to this. Yeah, that this person really is your redeemer. They're a kind of projection of Christ in the flesh. And I think maybe there's something of that left in Europe, even if it's not as conscious. Well, it's it's interesting because um, the one thing that kind of with the film that we're trying to get across, it's like, okay, so yes, this idol is not an idol. You know, she even said, she's this line from Hegel I really like, she's like the mysteries of the Egyptians or mysteries of the Egyptians themselves, cheese. But like, basically like, she doesn't even know, you know, she's not, she's completely divided herself. And it's like agonizing to be in that position all the time. But then at the same time, so so we go from, you know, fantasy to sort of the death of fantasy. But then once fantasy is dead, what do we do? Like, we still got to have some like kind of enchantment, you know, <laughs> we still got to find ways to, because obviously um, all this stuff is like painful pleasure, but it's still pleasure, you know, this, uh, um, fantasizing about people and all this kind of stuff but it's like how do we and we talked about this with um romance and um lost in translation it's like how do we find ways to like curate little moments and i think this is the this is maybe is as well what you were talking about nina about like the work of a relationship (laughs) you know um because it's not it's not just a given nothing's a given you know we have to um we do need enchantment in life and we have to sort of find ways to make that work, knowing that it's all sort of bullshit. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is and it isn't. Like, mm-hmm. it's real in the moment. That's the thing. It's like yeah. the present is very real. And I think this is also starts to become a very, like, painful moral question, actually, which is that your behaviour at every moment is meaningful. You know, in the in the the finitude of one's own life and in the finitude of one's own relationship with somebody else not you know even if you pledge till death do us part you know one of you one of you is probably going to die before the other unless you die together you know so you have you have a finite amount of time with someone else and if you're committed to spending that time with them then it's also another commitment to a third which is death you know and and in that sense, everything is meaningful. And the, the everyday is very, it's difficult. You know, it's a, it's a series of endless negotiations, of thoughtfulness, of um, trying to navigate what one person wants to do against another, you know, in the light of this commitment to all these other thirds. And But at the same time, what that does reveal is that in a way, you know, your moral responsibility is to every moment with this person Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. even if you decide to slack off or or if you become thoughtless you know that's that's still within the context you're still morally culpable right Mm -hmm. for your thoughtlessness you know and 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 you can see in a way that one of the opposite you know the possible other things would just to be on be on your own you know and i think we're increasingly heading towards society not just the intel question but you know of people living on their own a lot of people now live in single occupancy households you know whether they used to be married or whether they've had relationships in the past there's a lot of single people particularly also in advanced democracies quote unquote like sweden and so on and there's an interesting question there about desire and selfishness we might we could say and i don't mean that in a morally loaded way necessarily especially in east asia with the hikikomori and the 80 50 problem where uh, single single people who are 50 years old are living with their 80-something parents. Those 80-something parents die, the pension money evaporates, and the person who has lived there doesn't know where to go or what to do. Yeah, there was a point that I was actually going to make in relation to what you were saying here you know, about... Um... Oh, yeah, so it is interesting. And I think, like, Marx points this out, you know, that, like, wherever the bourgeoisie is in the ascendancy, the quote-unquote patriarchy, you know, is sort of obliterated. And it's interesting as well that, like, all these social structures, obviously, to a large extent, are a bulwark against capitalism. And then because, um, but then obviously on the sort of liberal left, the idea is like, oh, no, there is emancipation on the other side of obliterating the family. Let's just get rid of that. And it's like how... 
um, in order to sell back to us our further imprisonment by capital, we have to keep telling ourselves that it's for the good of everything because who wants a toxic, you know, who wants to be in a relationship with a man? Men are toxic, you know? <laughs> and uh, you, you know, you get, to, you get to live on your own and you get to decide what time you go to bed and what you have for dinner. Um, but obviously, yeah, we're going to go, I think the next step is these sort of... Um, communes of work you know these like we work but for for living you know <laughs> where you get to like rent a space where you're living there and it's yeah it's just interesting that it's always or well, now things are and obviously 68 is an example um it it's these um these things that appear to be left-wing or appear to be morally politically whatever superior to past ways of doing things but actually it's a way to sell us a further encroachment of capital because the more the more we get rid of social ties, the more our remaining ties become extraordinarily important and too important. And when you put too much weight and pressure on a social tie, that destroys it. So we get into a situation where we have all of these bad relationships, and we have them because we don't have enough relationships to have enough security. So in our remaining relationships, we're pushy and we're needy and we, we stress other people out. So then we go, well, see, aren't people so awful in these relationships? Let's just get rid of them too. But the more we get rid of relationships, the more whatever is left becomes obsessive and troubling. And even you know, if you, you get rid of all the relationships and you have people living completely on their own and, and genuinely and not having any kind of sexual encounters and, and staying completely alone, uh, then the relationship becomes with you know not people treated as images of concepts, but with concepts treated as images of people treated as images of concepts. And we get the fandoms and we get, you know, th this idea of uh, a waifu, a character in fiction who is a, a projection of a person that you will never, never pursue and never have and who is so much better than any person who you would ever meet. That's where it goes. It doesn't go toward anything that is sustainable. It just goes to more and more obsessive fixations. And once you move from people to a waifu, now you've moved to treating as a relationship object something which is literally sold to you mm -hmm. as a product. It's literally a thing. It's like, you know, instead of treating like, uh, you know, the reification process, basically, like all relationships become things and then relations between things. Right. So, I mean, the sex doll would also be like this, too. And um, yeah, it, it just reminded me thinking back to uh, some of the earlier struggles over desire, one of which was this attempt to understand the difference between men and women uh, captured in something like John Gray's Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, um, which is actually now a very archaic way in our contemporary moment of thinking about um, sexual difference or even to think about sexual difference at all. And I remember a kind of oppositional badge in a sort of lefty political shop at the time, which on the contrary said, uh, men are from Earth, women are from Earth, get over it, you know, which I quite liked at the time, right? Because, because you know, this idea that the kind of, um, you know, I suppose the non-materialistic uh, aspect of the John Gray title, right? The idea that somehow men and women are so diametrically opposed that you need this book to understand the kind of cosmic differentiated um, nature of their beings. And, you know, it's all a kind of mystery and a secret. But actually, if you start from the much more kind of banal premise, like someone like Alexandra Kollontai would, you know, like, and when, she, you know, her very interesting early 20th century Soviet Union attempts to, she's one of the only people to survive the purge, um, largely because she was a diplomat, you know, to try to um, link up an early version of the sexual revolution with the socialist revolution or communist revolution on the basis of the shared desires and interests of men and women of the working class. You know, so she was interested in how, in a way, to... Um, to deal with eros as a social question and to liberate people from um, sexual repression at the same time as liberate them from economic exploitation. You know, and she's one of the most brilliant thinkers. Um, and she has this, this idea of like socialism must not exclude human pleasure from its thinking, right? Like the idea that socialism is some kind of like austere anti-sex thing, you know, is unrealistic. For, apart from anything else, you know, and, and how to integrate the complexity of desire, because desire is also unfair, potentially capitalist, you know, uh, mendacious, hierarchical, 
be you know it's it's all of the things that a, a very strict communist would be opposed to because it's not equal it's not universal it's not fair it's not just you know i, I was just gonna say there is one way that maybe um desire can be fairer so obviously that makes me think of um, mimetic desire the girard thing that you know we're trapped in this idea of wanting what other people you know we want what other people have because they have it and there's a barrier to it with us and actually like the part of the emancipatory inside of psychoanalysis is like if we can just get not that there's a natural desire but that we are endowed accidentally due to our early experiences with certain sets of desires that if we could actually understand and get to there would be a greater difference and maybe we wouldn't be so hierarchical and competitive with each other and this is like I guess you know when things like uh critical theory gets sort of like mistaken because there is an idea that like yes of course it's you know there are all kinds of different ways of desiring and um being into whatever kind of snm is just as worthy as being vanilla or being gay or whatever um but the thing that has happened now is that whilst those things couldn't be capitalized upon when you didn't talk about it in public and you sort of had your own private fantastical experience now that it's in discourse and not only acceptable but morally worthy to have a different form of desire then then that can be commodified you know then then we're sort of like here's another product here's another form of desire here's another product that you can pay for on only fans when actually when it's all sort of in the private realm you know um you can kind of do whatever you do uh, without it sort of being being a visible product to pay for. Yeah, I uh, wanted to to briefly make a point about communism and socialism and the, the deep disagreement between the utopian socialists and the Marxists that I think leads to so much confusion on the part of people who aren't in, embedded in those circles as to what the left is doing. Now, on the one hand, you have this utopian socialist tradition that goes back to the French Revolution that is focused on returning to an equality which prevailed in a natural state and is therefore primitivist and is interested in returning to village type structures, right? And is therefore associated with great austereness and turning away from industrialization and going back to nature. Uh, and then on the other side, you have Marxists who think that capitalism is an emancipatory process because it produces unfathomable technology, which makes entirely new social formations possible. Right. So within the left, there's a, a deeply, deeply go back to nature, return to earth, go back to the village strand. And there's a go all the way through it. Go all the way through it, adopt the technology and, and it will take you somewhere good. Have faith in the process. It will it will take you somewhere good. And those two strands point to entirely different kinds of societies that are almost polar opposite. It's amazing the degree to which people can operate in left-wing spaces and have sympathy for both kinds of argument at once because they lead to entirely opposite conclusions. And so what, what I see all the time happen is that you'll, you'll have someone who's a Marxist who's arguing with a right-winger, and the right-winger will just project utopian socialism on. Or you'll have, you know, you'll be arguing with utopia. Very rarely will they pro project the Marxism on because especially in America, people are more familiar with utopian socialist positions than they are with Marxism. And more American leftists are utopian socialists than Marxists. But don't we have in reality sort of an actual, the utopian socialism? And, you know, we're talking about this a lot about these 68ers and the hippies in Silicon Valley who use that aesthetic to create the... So, like the the market form shall set you three because we have sleep pods and uh, I don't know. There's sort of this weird way that capitalism has managed to sort of like mal amalgamate those two things in a really horrible, contorted way. But yeah, I think I mean you know a few years ago there's kind of it's still going on I suppose, but the, the kind of left accelerationist position, which would take the position that I mean to some extent that Benjamin was referring to, like the fragment on the machines that that you can read this in a particular way. Marx is saying in a way, like, bring it on. You know, it's like, yes, there's something positive about capital. It, it dissolves these um, archaic ties. It, you know, destroys the village. Um, you know, like, there's no going back, right? The Industrial Revolution also unleashes all of these technological forces. And if we reorganise them, um, we can have, we can redistribute technology and, and use it in a particular way in order to benefit um, humanity. And, 
you know, the, the, yeah, exactly. Precisely one of the problems with this is that in reality, and this also happens to Sheila Myth Firestone as well in her revolutionary suggestions for reproductive technology, this will liberate women, you know, the sex, sex class comes before um, economic class, she says, you know, and the original division is between men and women on the injustice that's wrought by biology and that we can use technology to liberate women and therefore, you know, this will be a part of the socialist revolution and these technologies will, in a sense, bring about the revolution, she almost wants to say at points. And very clearly, manifestly, this isn't true. Like the, the you know, the, the compatibility with a sort of left accelerationist position in the Silicon Valley relationship to technology is too close. You know, I think, and, and this is why I think like um, the u- utopian um, socialism, however we want to describe it, of course we can, you know, it's it's very easy to laugh at something like primitivism, for example, like John Zerzan is a laughable figure for many, but although I think he's incredibly interesting, I think what he says about work is fascinating. You know, if we think that communism is free time and nothing else, is our free time going to be liberated by machines? That was also the promise of 1950s utopian housework, labour saving devices, literally so called. Um, you know, it, that hasn't uh, abolished uh, the amount of time people spend particularly doing things or the amount of time they spend doing nonsense jobs. Um, technology has enslaved us, as Illich says, we are the tool of the tool. These are not tools for conviviality, they're tools for absolute subjection, and we are tied to them, we are, we are basically their slaves. And, you know, so you can totally see why people would want something other, especially now we're trapped indoors and online all the time. It's like nature becomes this, it, it has for me too, it's like, it becomes this absolutely kind of, um, you know, visceral promise of the outside, of something else, something beyond this, that we belong to as well, that we are also nature, we are part of nature, you know, and so I think this, you can see why, I I mean, Benjamin puts it very well about the tension, but it's very real, that tension. I was just going to say that that basically anything that is cast as utopian or or that offers promise will be capitalised upon. So, for instance, um, so I think the attitude must be like, absolutely, if we if we feel that we need, you know, more of a an experience of being within nature, then we need to get there as in, but we see it as an experience of the here and now, like oh, heaven is here and now, utopia is here and now, it's in the present moment, that's it. And basically what will happen if we we have it as a sort of promise structure that we can get back to and we will all feel better doing it. Capitalism will sell it back to us, just like the labour savings device, whichever, you know, we're either going to the machine direction or the utopian direction. And what it'll do is it'll create products that will promise like breathing air from a tube or something, you know, from, from the Swiss Alps. And then we'll just have to create jobs for ourselves, bullshit jobs, to have the tokens to be able to pay for the experience of a return to nature. But if we can, the the problem is not a return to nature. It's um, an expectation question and attempt, like, it's funny, I was talking to a friend about this the other day and I was like, I didn't know if I agreed with him. And I don't know if temporality is the question, but I do believe that like, the the real emancipation is in is in the present moment. And as soon as there's a futurality to it or a promise to it, we'll just get it sold back to us. Uh, I think that a big part of what makes it so intractable is that Marx is largely right about why utopian socialism doesn't obtain. There are competitive forces that are unleashed by the existence of multiple states and the existence of uh, capitalism that make it very hard to go to a less productive uh, economic system without there being substantial instability or possibility of colonization by an external state, right? At the same time, it's also entirely possible that if you try to go through capitalism, you'll just get neo-feudalism and the complete dissolution of everything that's left that is meaningfully valuable. And and I think this is kind of the trap that the left is in. Each of these, to try to go back to the way it was, we can't do it. We, when we try to go back, we run into these competitive forces and incentives which make it impossible for states to revert back. Yet, if we just try to go through there's every reason to think that just going through leads to neo-feudalism and the tech barons completely dominating society and uh, either paying a, a garbage UBI to a, a, a group of people, uh, to, to what's left of ordinary people, or liquidating them in some kind of genocide. As Asimov describes in uh, his planet Solaria, where the rich people have divided the world up into estates worked by robots, each one about the size of Wyoming or Colorado. 
thousands and thousands of robots, each for one person. And that one person has been, through transhumanism, uh, gained the ability to asexually reproduce. They never have to encounter another person ever again. And they asexually reproduce one time. And then as soon as their kid is, is an adult, they can't stand to be around their kid anymore. So they, they, they die. I've actually heard this argument be used in all seriousness. Um, but I won't say it by who. Anyway, but um, so I, I think within a certain oligarchical class, it's actually an idea that people are having. Um, but the point, the point being, like, I kind of feel that on the left, what tends to happen is we all have our personal neurosis and we all have our personal fantasies and we all have our personal traumas. And then what we often do <laughs> is we... Um, we feel just as you know identity politics politics has done this we feel like our identity we're encouraged to feel like our identity is what what we can what we have to sell and what makes us special but then what often happens is we have our own experience of trauma and our own um experience of an imagination of what that resolution could be and that we have these sort of um, texts from philosophers or whatever that tell us that no, this this insight, your experience is working in this job, or your experience is being abandoned by your mother like this, means that that's going to be the insight. And I notice this on the left all the time, and maybe like I'm even guilty of this. We have these people who maybe have had um, tense familial situations as children, and then they they start to think, well, no, I know that the situ that the solution to everything is abolishing the family. Because I had a bad family experience, like it, it see, and then and then one takes on board, one resonates with certain scholars. Firestone, for example, might be one in this instance, and then we like spend a whole career like saying that this is the solution, this is the solution. Um, but of course, whenever it's a promise to resolve something that has already happened, it's interesting that Winnicott writes a lot about this idea, well, not very much actually, twice about this idea of fear of breakdown that. Um, psychotic subjects and also neurotic subjects sometimes um, experience a situation really early on in their life where they experience a sort of psychic breakdown and it's so traumatic and but they've already gone through that breakdown because it's before the ego formation and um, they go through the rest of their life believing that a breakdown is going to happen and fearing that this breakdown is going to happen so they kind of replay this this but, but the funny thing is the breakdown has already happened so um, the only thing to fear is fear itself in sense in this way but often I just feel like because we're also maybe this is the new the, the step step two of identity politics. We have identity politics, which is our material like race or gender or whatever that the market tells us is special or whatever. But now we have on this. <laughs> I don't know if you guys have noticed this. I really noticed this. And that but but the point being that anything that promises a return to an experience of wholeness or that you could resolve your own personal trauma, whatever it won't work because the break the break has already happened and the break has already happened and it's a necessary break for you to sort of be who you are um so yes i don't know have you guys noticed that at all that you like you see people's like personal neuroses being played out in their like political positions no definitely i mean i think a lot of the more recent family abolition stuff so not the stuff from david cooper and rd lang which you know i i think is much more interesting and was coming out of their work with um you know, schizophrenic and in inverted commas patients, um, where they were looking at the wider relations and family structures precisely of these people who were separated out as individuals by asylums and by doctors, you know, and their criticism of the family was uh, coming from a very different place. Whereas I think a lot today, you know, today a lot of the family abolition stuff, it's like, A, this stuff is already being done by capital, you know, it's like the family is already destroyed by these things, you know, okay, let's accelerate it. But a lot of it is based precisely on these kind of very personal pathologies. And I, you know, I often on the left in the last few years, I've sort of, you know, half jokingly suggested like a mass collective psychoanalysis of everyone for everyone by everyone, because, you know, that it's, it's, they're inseparable, but it's, it's not to reduce politics to psychoanalysis, right? It's not to say everybody's political beliefs and commitments are simply a function of their, you know, psychoanalytic makeup. But if you detach these question, two questions completely, then you have no insight into some of why you're doing what you're doing. You know, we, we can only ever have limited insight anyway. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but, there, there is a sense in which, you know, a, a politics stripped completely of a psychoanalytic or, in, you know, insightful or individual aspect will only ever become pathological because people aren't are not going to know enough about their motivations for doing certain things. Exactly. And when it comes from this existential gaping wound 
of, of for example, childhood, it will it will inevitably take on this ideal. I say this all the fucking time, and I'm really sorry for repeating myself, but this sort of flavor of the ideology of promise, this sort of desperate capitalistic urge, and therefore anything anything that has this flavor of promise to it or utopia will capital will capitalize upon it like it just happens i think that people really have to understand that the psychoanalytic is heavily enmeshed with the sociological Mm -hmm. and that these things can't be treated dualistically you know there was a a study that came out this week that was trending the other day uh, about whether people who showed up to the capital occupation in dc uh, you know whether those people were motivated by economic anxiety or by you know cultural animus, you know because they're bad racist bigot people, right? And starting from the premise that these are two separate things, but of course if you are willing to entertain any kind of serious psychoanalysis, then of course what you will see is that these things are connected to each other in all kinds of ways. You know, people who are economically anxious are more likely to have animus, but also. If there are people who have economic anxiety, then you will have culture which is produced to play into that anxiety. That culture will be consumed by other people, by third parties who are not in the same economic situation, but who are consuming a culture which is made for people in that situation. And those people will pick up the same kinds of cultural ideas, even though they're you know, not picking it up directly because they're economically anxious, but because they've been submersed into a popular culture, which is about administering to the experience of anxiety. That's a very simple argument. And yet you don't see this in quantitative analyses, which treat these things as stuff you can put into little boxes that you can build little walls between and you can go, well, it's this or it's that. It's psychology rather than psychoanalysis. Like psychoanalysis absolutely is a science. It's a material science of the unconscious. Like it absolutely is a scientific response to a neurosis emerging because of like that that Freud, for example, had noticed with the Industrial Revolution. A and B, it absolutely when it comes to the issues, it takes like material reality causing it. Like um, sort of in psycho in psychoanalysis, like nature is nurture, you know. So, but but what has happened is that sort of like faux Freudian um, misreadings because like this is this is the thing with everything. It's like it's. It's literally about contradiction. And then if we we take the thing that's about exposing the contradiction, use the aesthetics of it to paper over contradiction, and then you get therapy culture, which like is just, yes, <laughs> another capital, capitalist ploy. But anyway, well, not intentional, but it, oh, yeah, you, know, Spe- you know. Speaking of relations and the commodification of desire and relations, you know, I mean, that, that trend, uh, you know, uh, a little while ago where people talk about emotional labor, which was a uh, originally a mark expansive marxist hypothesis of people like Ali Hochschild who were looking at um jobs particularly um female jobs that were had this emotional component where part of the service was being yourself and your personality and she talked about the cognitive dissonance in the managed heart which is you know more than 40 50 years old about how emotional labor was a kind of useful supplement to thinking about marxist categories of exploitation eventually ended up becoming, you know, Venmo me $10 for listening to you complain about how sad you feel today. You know, I mean, that, that this, this total, like, um, I don't know, disintegration of an analytic concept into a, um, an absolutely mercenary, reified social practice um, was astonishing. I should say, I kind of made a mistake there. I don't mean therapy culture, because I think therapy, the word therapy, also means psychoanalysis, like people say, interchanges. I mean, like self-help culture. But, no, um, sure, but that, yeah, but, that's what but, I Yeah, but that's absolutely, yeah. absolutely what you're saying is totally true. And what we do is we, we use the excuse of some insight about absolutely the way capitalism works, yeah. absolutely who is exploited or whatever, and then we transform it from a collective emancipatory potential to an individualist correction. And this, obviously, in America, you have the suing culture is really prevalent, but obviously, people are more precarious, potentially, in the States, because you have much greater inequality, although we're heading that way, and you don't have a welfare state like we do in Europe and stuff. But that you notice this now, where you have people going on dates, and sort of like, I didn't have a nice experience here, you know, I'm going to charge you for my time. I mean, I've seen sort of these sort of things pop up online, where, you know, people say, I got a receipt from a girl who didn't. But you know, there's this really sort of like... um people suing each other. Obviously, there's a case at the moment with an actor who's quite well known. And that's not to say, on an individual level, I'm sure people have reasons to and they experience like trauma and all this kind of stuff. But it's a sort of trend 
And it's more, it's not indicative of, you know, the personal responsibility of the person who's doing the suing necessarily. It's about the societal, the society we've created in, in the world in which people feel that um, the experience that they had was so bad uh, that they have to seek damages for an experience because they obviously felt used and precarious because there's no, there's no social bonds beyond that terrible experience so yeah i don't want to say like um yeah i actually know people yeah who who have done that so i'm not saying like they don't have a right to do that i'm just saying it says something about society that has created and that's yeah. what a receipt is a receipt when you say oh i have receipts i have proof that this person interacted with me in a displeasing way and i'm going to show you that this person interacted with me in a displeasing way and in this way i'm taking that person back to the store mm -hmm. yeah and i'm going manager Manager, you gave me the wrong kind of conversation today. I don't like this. Exactly. I want, I want this person returned. But this is like the customer is always right. And this basically um, implies that no one can make a mistake. It's like if someone like, you know, does something upsetting or says something wrong or like misunderstands a situation and like makes a move or passes or something, it's like that could be an error of interpretation, right? Like typically, we, we used to live in a world in which the mistakes happened like that. You know, people would misunderstand. They would think that somebody desired them when they didn't or they, you know, they tried to, whatever, like misunderstandings of all kind, you know, whether social, conversational, sexual, romantic, whatever, you know, and, and also like a, a, a different relation to risk. You know, it's like you would think, oh, well, I, if I don't risk something, I might never know. Like, so you ask someone out on a date, what's the worst they can say? No, right? And but now it's like precisely this kind of um, zero sum game, the commodification of, of, of every moment. Um, the customer is always right. So there can't ever be any mistakes. So people can't make accidental, you know, they can't have misread a situation and have done something that was maybe a bit upsetting for a second. But you 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 wouldn't then like the normal response, let's say uh, by normal, I mean, like in the 90s when people were still human beings. Um, would be to <laughs> would be to go like oh well that's a bit unfortunate but you'd feel a bit bad for the other person you go like okay it was just a mistake it doesn't matter you wouldn't dwell on it like it certainly wouldn't like um carry on impinging on your relation to the world it would just be like one of those things one of those things one of those things exactly one it, of those it's things it's because yeah. it, it's because if you are going to be treated as a product by everyone else the only way that it's fair is if you can treat everyone else as a product yeah and so the more we treat everybody as a product, the more we will be treated as a product, and it goes on and on and on. But are we a consumer or are we a product? We're both. The, the, this is the only way you can be a consumer is to also be a product. Yeah. And we hate being a product. And because we hate being a product, we insist on trying to be a consumer. And that turns everyone else into a product. And that pisses them off and causes them to want to consume us back. So we're just in a whole using and being used loop. Right. Um, but yeah, and then, and then like we obviously haven't mentioned like marriage as like which is a sort of a traditional arrangement, sort of like um, is some sort of guarantee, you know. And I do, I do think it's sort of interesting about well, that you know, the, there is this complicated thing of when one enters into a like who who is marriage for, um, what's it worth now, and things like that. But you know, and then also finding different with you know the sort of like reaction against marriage where marriage is just archaic because we feel it's culturally archaic and then we just do something else like a um a uh you know whatever they call it civil partnership or whatever you know great but there is a certain thing of, of i think people feel um maybe women especially but men as well um a like a, a, a time you know there is a there is a certain time set of set of years that one has to be reproductively whatever or to be attractive to people and yeah, when you feel like um, it's sort of all to play for because because there's nothing to fall back on, one yeah, it is funny that people often end up feeling very used. Well, marriage gets reinterpreted back through the lens that we've just been talking about. If everything is using and being used, then to marry someone is to essentially become their slave, mm -hmm. uh, and that's how marriage is now being backread in light of how we are now treating everybody. So the older conception of what marriage is and what it's about becomes inaccessible to us. Uh, but we are now reaching about an hour mark, so we're going to have to cut it short. But we will go on to do a B-side next, which you can listen to if you follow us on Patreon. So 
Thank you guys so much. I will also say I'll put a link to the film for the patrons in Patreon. Yeah, there will be a link to the film for the patrons with the special code that you need to get access to it so you can watch it. All right. Take care, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye.